Hello, it's Wednesday, 15th of February. I'm Gary Bowerman. On today's show, I'll be chatting trains, planes, and transport infrastructure development across the region with James Clark, producer of the Future Southeast Asia newsletter. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. It's just me this week as Hannah is away traveling in Japan. Wherever you travel across Southeast Asia right now, it's impossible to miss that transport infrastructure is being built out on a vast scale. And this will be a feature in most countries of our region through the 2020s and perhaps beyond. So today, I'm delighted to welcome back James Clark, founder of the Future Southeast Asia newsletter. James and I have compiled a list of the region's 10 top travel infrastructure developments, which we'll be discussing over the next 30 minutes or so. James was previously on the show last October and has since been traveling frequently around Southeast Asia, tracking new and under construction transport and tourism projects. So James, welcome back to the show. How are you doing and where are you today? Uh, thanks, Gary. It's good to be back. You know, I'm in Chiang Mai, Thailand today. And so you've just been in Vietnam and now you've moved across to, to Thailand. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I'll be here uh, for about six weeks and I'll have a look around at some things in Bangkok and then along the beaches. Great. So it's great to be chatting again, James. Uh, a few months since we last did that. Um, we've got a lot to, to crack on with. And as I said, we've got a, a list of the top 10 transport infrastructure projects across the region. So let's kick on with number one. And I think this is one we're both pretty excited about. We've both been following for quite a long time. That takes us to Indonesia, and that's the Jakarta-Bandung High-Speed Railway. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so this is like the first true high-speed railway in Southeast Asia. I know that high-speed rail is a term that a lot of uh, governments like to use about their projects, but this is actually a real high-speed railway, which will have a top speed of 350 kilometres an hour. So it's going to be a, a groundbreaking moment in the history of railways in Southeast Asia. We, we still don't know what the top operating speed will be because the track will only be 143 kilometres long, but it will be able to operate at that speed. So maybe it will operate at 250 kilometres at the start, which will still be the fastest train in Southeast Asia. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, James? This project has been running, what, seven years now, as with most uh, infrastructure and particularly railway projects. It's gone hugely over budget. There have been long delays. I think Indonesia and the Chinese government, who are jointly constructing and developing this project, uh, announced, I think, earlier this week that there's another cost overrun of 1.2 billion US dollars, which I think takes the total project cost up to about 8.5 billion US dollars. It's expensive. But as I said there, one of the key in key elements of this project, James, is Chinese state um, companies being involved, railway companies. So the railway tracks, the trains themselves, and the railway operating systems are all coming from China, and they're using this, aren't they, as a kind of showroom for their technology for other countries in Southeast Asia. Yeah, that's right. So there was a a pretty high-profile battle between China and Japan to win this contract. So uh, China won out in the end, and they they might get the the chance to continue the, the track all the way to Surabaya. Uh, but you know, the, because it was a a competition between two countries, you know, there is like speculation of whether the um, both 
parties, you know, undersold how much it would really cost. And then obviously the prices have gone up or maybe they just didn't realise how expensive it would be to work in Indonesia with trying to acquire land. Uh, And there's also been problems with like building the railway. They didn't realise how hard it would be to build on like, you know, a volcanic island basically, like like the um, drilling into the ground is a lot more difficult. So there's a lot of uh, issues that they've had to deal with. And so I know that you're eager for this to open because you want to get there and you want to try it and be one of the first people to ride it. Where are we currently? What's the current schedule for this project? Well, at the last update said June this year. So uh, I'm not going to book anything until they're running, basically. So I probably won't even. I mean, maybe if, they've, if they're a month in advance saying this is definitely going to happen, I'll try and get there. Uh, but yeah, I've learned my lesson to not book anything in advance, you know, with the hope of being there on the opening day. Yeah, very sensible. It's a, it's a fascinating project. I'm sure over the coming months, there's going to be a lot of news coverage, and particularly when it opens, it's going to be a, a tourism attraction for sure. So let's move on to number two, James. And this takes us to another part of the region, to Singapore. And this is Changi Terminal 5. Now, this is a huge terminal, really. It's, al- it's almost a new airport that they're building in Singapore. This had been on the, the, the building blocks for a number of years, but it was postponed during the pandemic and then rescheduled uh, in July last year, 2022. Construction is going to start in a couple of years' time. The airport itself will only open in the mid-2030s. But this is a mega project. If you take uh, the four terminals of Singapore, Changi together, they have around about 70 million capacity. I think it was 68.3 million passengers through Changi in 2019. But this new terminal alone will have 50 million per year uh, passenger capacity, almost doubling what it already has. Now, that's a huge project, isn't it, James, in a country that doesn't have any domestic air market. Yeah, it's an incredible project and it shows you how, you know, Singapore really just look ahead to the future and just get everything done before it needs, they really need it. So like you look at, say, like when Bangkok opened their new airport and it was over capacity within about three months and they had to reopen the old airport. Um, Whereas in in Singapore, they're like, well, we know that in 30 years time, we're going to need this much airspace so they're really just planning ahead so you you can just go to Singapore and you'll never face any delays or you know air you know aeroplanes flying around trying to get an air air spot because they've already built everything for the future and yeah like you said it's going to be basically terminal five is basically the double the size of terminals one to four yeah, I think you make a good point there is that one thing I think we can be, be sure about this project is we'll be able to trust it will happen and it will be very, very good when it's, when it's actually built. We're going to discuss a couple of other uh, airport expansion and development projects here in the region. But you can imagine since Changi opened, which I think is way back now in 1981, uh, so it'll be moving into its second half decade by the time uh, Terminal 5 opens in the mid-2030s. But it is one of the best airports in the world for sure. It wins awards every time. And I'm, I'm, I have to say, I mean, it's a long, long time in the future, but I'm looking forward to, to, to trying out Terminal 5. So let's move on to our third one, James. This takes us to Vietnam, where you've been traveling recently. And this is the Ho Chi Minh City Metro. Last time you were on the show, you discussed the Hanoi Metro. Tell us what's happening in Ho Chi Minh City. Well, Ho Chi Minh City is uh, building their first metro railway. So this started in 2012, and it was actually meant to be completed in 2016. And... 
obviously if you can work that out what is it now six years overdue or something so it's been a very delayed project and it's been a source of frustration with everyone who's living in the city because there has been construction uh, mess in the middle of the city and every year they keep changing the the year that it's going to open so you know in 2016 they said 2017 and then it just blows out every year so it's almost a joke that it's like well when's it going to open so there are doing test runs now so there is light at the end of the tunnel even though it's only a small tunnel in in this one there's like three stations in a tunnel um, and about 12 stations outside of it and what's the routing for this, James? Because I remember when you were talking about the Hanoi, the first metro line in Hanoi, it wasn't really central, was it? It was more decentralised line. What, what's happening in Ho Chi Minh City? Well, they've got a very good route here because it actually starts in the centre of the city in front of Bentan Market, which is pretty much the geographical centre of the city, of the old area. And it goes out into the east of the city and it will stop at uh, a new eastern bus terminal so it has a good good route and more crucially the um, part of the delay has been they've built a three line interchange at bentan station so that's pretty much unheard of in southeast asia to start a new metro by planning for the future by building three lines in one area they've only started building one line but they've built six platforms there so when the other two lines are built they'll be ready so It'll be an incredible system to have a three-line interchange, uh, but that's probably going to take 20 years given the, the amount of time it's taken to build this one line. Yeah, that's interesting stuff. So let's move on to number four, James. So the first three of our top 10 transport infrastructure projects in Southeast Asia have encompassed an airport, a high-speed railway, and a metro system. We're going to go back to the rail system and this is, you know, one of the, the major projects that we've been discussing over recent months and years, and that's the China-Laos Railway. It opened in December 2021. You've ridden on it, but it's only been open within Laos itself. What's the prognosis for opening up across the borders, James, so that Chinese travelers can travel in and out of Laos? Yeah, so the, the China-Laos Railway has been, you know, an incredible success in terms of how fast they built it and they built it pretty much uh, within budget, as far as we know. But all the administrative stuff like, you know, selling tickets and the um, international border crossings is taking, you know, far longer to work out. Um, They still haven't got an online ticket system yet. So there's this archaic system of having to go into an office and buy tickets in person. And I guess because we've never had to do international rail crossings before both countries are still trying to work out how that procedure will work Um, so there was one report that said it's going to take four hours to to clear immigration between laos and china or either way so that's going to really throw a spanner in the works of like if you wanted to like come from china and you know go to luang prabang it's like all of a sudden you've got four hours added to your trip was there any justification for that, James? Did they say why it would take four hours? I mean, that seems astonishing. Uh, I don't know. I guess if there's a train full of a 1,000 people, maybe they're working out that there's like 200 people per hour or something that it's going to take. Um, you know, maybe they, they should probably look at Europe, like because, you know, you have 
a history of there of you know when the trains left borders and even now when they go outside the Schengen area and the train has to you know get checked by immigration on both sides so you know they probably should need, look at how other countries do it or make a a more unified system so uh, we're at four hours that's not really a that's not going to be a good way to do it yeah no that's a good point so just just dovetailing there you made a good point earlier when we were talking about the high-speed railway between jakarta and bandung in indonesia which will be legitimately the first high-speed railway in southeast asia now i was writing about this on my own uh, newsletter asia travel reset two or three months ago and somebody uh, replied to me and said, well, no, Asia, Southeast Asia already has its own high-speed railway system. That's the China-Laos railway. But of course, that's not totally correct, is it? Because this actually relates to, to speed that the trains travel. Yeah, so just because they say it's high-speed does mean it is. So, you know, you, you know, you've got countries saying 120 kilometres is high-speed. I mean, if you're travelling, if your old train was 40 kilometres an hour, sure, 120 seems very high-speed. Technically, the um, Laos China Railway is 160 kilometres an hour for passenger traffic, which is classified as semi-high speed. So for high speed, you're looking at, you know, there are different classifications. Some say it's 200 kilometres an hour and some say 250 kilometres an hour. So either way, you know, it's just disingenuous to just call everything a high speed railway just because it's fast. Yeah, it's just an easy umbrella term, isn't it? So tell us, James, you, you rode the, the, the Laos part of the China Laos Railway last year. How did you enjoy it? Oh, it's incredible. Like just to, the fact to see this new railway in Laos where there was none before. And, you know, honestly, 160 kilometres is perfect for a country the size of Laos. You know, it doesn't need to be a 300 or 250 kilometre an hour railway. Um, so... I think if there are more, like, you know, there are other countries in the region like Cambodia are now looking at building a railway about that speed. So it makes a huge difference when, you know, you can get from Vientiane to Lang Prabang in two hours instead of like eight hours that it used to take. Yeah, I'm still green with Envy, James. I can't wait to, to get on that train. I'm really looking forward to doing that, hopefully later this year. So let's move on to number five, which keeps us within uh, Laos to some degree. And this is a station... Um, that's going to help connect Thailand and Laos, the trains that are being built to connect those two countries. Tell us a bit more there. Yeah, so there's the, uh, the station in uh, Vientiane South, which will be uh, connect the... There is already a railway line from uh, Nong Kai in Thailand to Tanalang, which is across the border. So it's like this four-kilometre shuttle train. But uh, to get to... Vientiane, you have to get like in a, a minivan or a taxi or something and it's, you know, so it's not really going all the way to Vientiane. But this train is in Vientiane South. So eventually there is going to be train services from Nong Kai to Vientiane South. So it will be a true connection from Thailand to Vientiane capital. Okay, that sets us up for number six. And this is where it starts to get complicated, James. And this is where we're going to need your expert insight. And this is Thailand's own high-speed railway system, which is being built in two phases. Now, if my understanding is correct, and this has been on the, uh, on the boards for a number of years, I've been discussing and it's actually under construction. This is going to be about a 610-kilometer high-speed railway, a proper high-speed railway from the capital, Bangkok, to Nong Kai, which I think is on the Lao Thai border. Now, how does this 
happen? Where are we currently with it? Let's break this down. And how does that connect to what you were just talking there about the the station in southern Vientiane? Yeah, this is a very complicated subject because it, it's very confusing because what Thailand is doing is building two separate railway systems at the same time. So there is already a, a railway from Bangkok to Nong Kai, which is on the border uh, opposite uh, Vientiane. So they, they already have that train, which is on the one-metre gauge railway. And what they're doing is uh, upgrading this metre gauge railway into a double-track system So because all the railways in Thailand used to be on a single track and where both both directions have to share the same track. But in addition to upgrading this metre gauge railway, Thailand are building next to it a high-speed railway which will be on a standard gauge, so it's a bit wider than the metre gauge. And this will be the one that will be able to connect to the Laos-China railway. So eventually trains from Bangkok can travel on this track in, in Laos and then go all the way to Kunming. So you could feasibly have a one train going from Bangkok to Kunming. But the problem is here is that China is just, I mean, Thailand is just pouring resources into building two separate railway systems when they should have just consolidated it and built uh, one. Um, so, like, I've, I've been seeing these pictures of these um, elevated railway tracks that they're building at the moment, uh, but this is for the one-metre line, and they're going to have to build another elevated railway for the high-speed rail next to it. So it's just an absurd amount of resources they're spending uh, in th- Thailand. Yeah, as you said, they're double tracking, excuse the pun there, this railway system. But let's talk specifically about the high-speed railway system, James. Now, this is being built in two phases, isn't it? As we said, from Bangkok to Nong Kai. Um, I think construction began, what, I don't know, five or six years ago. The phase one is supposed to open in 2025, 2026, is that correct? And then phase two, what's happening with that? Well, there's been a lot of false starts with this where they've actually started building it and then they stopped and then they had like built like a, a test section and then they've had a lot of problems with acquiring land and then, you know, getting funds and it's just taking years. So I don't think that it'll, we don't know when it will truly open. They're going to open in sections like from Bangkok to Nakhon Ratchasima and then continue on to Nong Kai after that. So, I mean, that'll be great for domestic travel because you could then go from like Bangkok to Nakhon Ratchasima in like 70 minutes or something like that. So it'll put like Nakhon Ratchasima into like a uh, commuter distance. And then eventually that will be great to get to, to um, Laos. But yeah, it this is like something they should have been doing at the same time as that um, the Laos railway was built. Yeah. And this is where it also becomes a diplomatic issue, isn't it? Because as you said, James, the China-Laos railway constructed by Chinese railway firms you know, with strong Chinese government backing, the delays in the Thailand project have started to cause a little bit of friction between Thailand and China because China is pushing ahead for this to happen much more quickly than it actually seems to be able to. And there was a really fascinating quote from the Department of Transport, the Director General in Thailand, who said recently, I think it was last month, in the Bangkok Post, he was quoted as saying, because the high-speed train project really is new to Thailand, we have to rely on China, which helps us with designing the project and controlling construction. Now, if you deconstruct that sentence, James, it tells you quite a lot about this project and quite a lot of the rail projects across our region. Yeah, that's right. Like a th- Thailand is sort of knows how to build their own 
metre gauge railway, but yeah, going into the high-speed railway, it's all, all new technology. Uh, you know, all, all the lines are being electrified, so everything is new. Right. So leaving aside high-speed railway briefly, James, let's move back into the airport uh, sphere. And this is Malaysia. This is Malaysia's Subang Airport, uh, which is the second airport in the country after KLAA. You could actually say it's the third airport after KLAA and KLIA 2, uh, officially known as Sultan Abdul Aziz Shah Airport. Subang Airport used to be actually the international airport in Malaysia until 1998 when KLI opened. Now, recently, a plan has been approved to expand Subang Airport uh, to what is called, and we hear this phrase quite a lot, a regional aviation hub. James, what does that mean? What is this project involved and why now? Yeah, I guess they... Uh... They need to make some more more space for KL because you know you can only only expand so much. So Subang is also a very good location. So uh, it's much closer to KL. So there is an advantage of like having an, an airport closer to the city. Um, it was actually they they actually built a a new uh, railway to Subang where they connected it to KL Central, but that's actually been cancelled this month. I think today actually. So. A bit disappointing that they're getting rid of a uh, an airport rail link, but I guess if they are going to like expand the airport, it will be uh, they will need to bring back the railway. Um, I've only I've used it once, and it was really even though it's closer to the to KL, it was really inconvenient to get to. So having the train there was like a good idea. But at the at that point, they were only using like the uh, regional aircraft, like the uh, ATR seventy two aircraft, like the puddle jumpers. So uh, I'm not sure. Did you see if they were putting larger aircraft there? I'm not sure if they would be doing that. Yeah, that's that is the the, the crux of what what this is about, James. As you said, they only really use short uh, short hull turboprop aircraft, so most of the flights from Subang are, are short distance flights, mostly domestic. There are a few to Thailand, um, but what they are hoping to do is to reintroduce. Um, commercial commercial passenger flights, which will be slightly larger body, narrow body jets. Um, this is again going to be in the future. And they're saying that this airport, I think it, they, they, they're calling it a regional aviation hub, but that's kind of a misnomer because I think the capacity will only be 8 million passengers once it's redeveloped. And they're saying that this actually would be a city airport to complement the international airport, which makes much more sense. Personally, I hope that they don't touch the Subang Airport. I really hope that this wouldn't happen because I love Subang Airport. It's very, very easy. You go straight through. I use it all the time for domestic travel. You know, once it gets bigger and more complex, that will mean there are more delays. But um, I guess inevitably it does make sense to have uh, a complement to, to KLAA. But let, let's see how this one develops. It sounds like it's it's more like a London city airport where it's like this very small airport that are used by turboprop aircraft by you know business travellers who are travelling around Western Europe. So if they were sort of you know teeing it up as that, then that would make sense. But you know, like KLIA is already a regional hub. It's like basically put KL on the map. You know, thanks to the likes of Air Asia, where you can pretty much get from anywhere in Southeast Asia due to that. So I don't know how they're going to make it a regional hub airport when they've already got one. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think you're right. I think that London City Airport is a little bit more of the model. I think they also want to expand. It does quite well in terms of um, small like business jet um, flights as well. I think they want to increase that. And I think they also want to, looking ahead into the future, and make it as a kind of um, port for EVTOLs, you know, when, if, if and when 
Evtol start developing um, across right. the region, they can do that there as well, because as you say, it's closer to the city. So that brings us through seven of our top 10 uh, Southeast Asian travel and transport development projects. Number eight takes us back into the train sphere. And this one is an interesting one, James. You've been talking about this for quite a while. And this is the Trans-Sulawesi uh, Express uh, on Indonesia's fourth largest island, Sulawesi. It launched the trial phase of its first train service uh, quite recently. And I didn't realize this, James, that before this project opened, passenger train services were only available on two Indonesian islands, Java and Sumatra. There was nothing in Sulawesi before. Yeah, it's quite an amazing project that's sort of flown under the radar, really. Like, no one really talks about this. Like, obviously, the high-speed railway in, in Java is getting all the international attention. Uh, but this one has just been quietly going along. The plan is to build a railway from Makassar in the south to Minato in the north. So it'll be like a 1,600-kilometre railway in the end, which is a massive undertaking. Uh, but, yeah, like the journey of a, a, a trans-Sulawesi island railway begins with the first 100-kilometre section, and if they're just doing it 100 kilometres at a time, then, you know, hopefully in our lifetime there'll be a railway going all the way to the north. At the moment, they've built a 100-kilometre section and they're officially inaugurating 80 kilometres of it in May. There'll be a um, presidential inauguration. So it'll, I will hopefully, uh, if I go to the Java uh, high-speed rail, I might pop over after that and check this one out. And, and what's, the, what's the speeds on this one, James? This was, it's not a high-speed project, is it? No, it's just a pretty much like 120 kilometres, maybe like, so, but still, it's going to be a great improvement because the roads are pretty bad in, in Sulawesi. So that will be a great improvement. Yeah, I look forward to that. And I look forward to reading your reports when, when you jump aboard, James. So let's move on to our number nine. This takes us back into the airport sphere. Uh, and this is the new Siem Reap uh, Angkor International Airport. Again, this one's gone a little bit under the radar, James. Tell us a bit more. Yeah, so the, the current Siem Reap Airport is like pretty much right in the middle of town. Like you can see the planes taking off at uh, Angkor and that's been part of the um, reasons to move it is because the airport is so close to the historical site, they're worried about um, pollution and uh, the degradation of the, the site to, you know, constant uh, exposure to pollution. So they've moved the airport outside of the city. Uh, the thing is, though, the airport is like 50 kilometres from Seam Reap Town. So I haven't seen any news about have they upgraded the roads because if you've travelled on any road in Cambodia, it sort of takes a while to get anywhere. Um, so you're going to have like plane loads of people arriving and then they've got like a arduous bus journey to get into town. Yeah, that's a good point. My suspicion on this one, or my expectation on this one, James, because this is being uh, invested again from China, isn't it? It's yes. uh, China's Yunnan Investment Holding Group. I would imagine they would build a, a brand new road to, to connect it. But uh, as you said, we, we, we haven't heard too much about that. Now, James, in terms of the size of this airport, I read, and I don't know how true this is, that it would initially be about 7 million passengers per year, and that would increase in increments up to about 20 million per year by 2050. Where does that stand in terms of Cambodia's other airports? Would, would that make it the biggest in the country? Uh, no, because you've got the, there's a new airport being built in, um, for, Camp, uh, for Phnom Penh, outside of Phnom Penh City. So this one is going to be, like they're planning like 50 million plus for this one. So 
Phnom Penh will definitely be, be the premier airport for the country. Uh, but yeah, with an expanded Siem Reap airport, it'll be, you know, they will continue to push getting more direct flights from China. So they'll be building for growth there. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you mentioned this uh, a couple of minutes ago. What's the current tracking? When is it supposed to open? Yeah, they're saying, I think, October this year. So uh, that's another one that I, I mean, I wouldn't, I'd wait until it's open and before confirming that because, you know, this one has kept on being delayed as well. But that, that's the, what we're looking at so far. Interesting. Okay, so that's nine down. This is our last, our number 10 on our top 10 list of Southeast Asian travel and transport uh, infrastructure projects. This one takes us back to Thailand, James, and this one takes us back onto the railways. Tell us more. Yeah, so we're looking at the uh, double tracking project of the meter gauge railway, which I spoke about with the, the Northern Line. But this is, uh, they're also double tracking the, southern line so going all the way down to malaysia but the first section will take us from bangkok to huahin so this is even though it's like we're using the same uh, trains it'll actually speed things up a bit because they are currently on the uh, single track you have to wait for other trains to pass so you might um you could have trains that are waiting at a, a passing loop waiting for the other train to pass or there are just not as many trains running because they have to like schedule the timetable very tightly to allow trains from either direction to pass. But with the double tracking, you could then have regular scheduled trains. So you could have trains going to Huahin every two two hours instead of like, you know, the four or five a day that they have at the moment. And some of them are like in the middle of the night. So uh, that will be a big uh, change for getting to Huahin and it should take um it might take an hour off the trip which is about four or five hours depending on what train you get so it all of a sudden makes Huahin a more easier beach destination from Bangkok and linked to that just before we finish James Bangkok opened a brand new train station we've been talking about this um recently just tell us a little bit more about that because it's huge isn't it It's it's the region's biggest train station yeah so that this is the the train at uh, Bangsu uh, at this old Bangsu station, which they've rebuilt um, next to that. And there's like 26 platforms over three levels and they've got like uh, they've built platforms ready for the high-speed railway. Uh, so that's already built in and they've got the commuter railway running there, which runs to the north and to the west of Bangkok. And then they've got the long-distance trains, which have moved from Hualampong last month and they're now running outside of that station. Any plans to get back there to, to ride the rails in Thailand? Yeah, I will check it out next month. So um, uh, not, I won't be doing it. Maybe um, I might do a trip just to have a look, but I'll definitely go into the station and have a look around again. I've been to the station before, but only when the commuter railway was running. So it'll be good to see what it looks like with you know long distance trains running. Brilliant. So that brings to a close this week's show. We packed in a great amount there, James. Many thanks for your insights and, and for sharing uh, some of your experiences. Uh, there's a lot to look forward to, isn't there? I mean, there's so much development happening. Yeah, it's great. I'm looking forward to being able to uh, have more options for rail travel in Southeast Asia. So it's a pretty exciting time. Yeah, absolutely agree. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast. And don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything that I discussed with James today or anything that we missed out drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. As always, you can catch up 
with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com, and you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. Hannah will be back next week, and we'll look forward to talking more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia and beyond with you then. Bye.